and good morning. Please join me in a prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this gift of a day. Uh, I thank you for the gift of getting together people that uh, have heard and known your love. Father, I pray that I will be a I will be a faithful and effective messenger of your good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, not that long ago, uh, 1973, I I saw a really great movie. I mean, it was in the spring of 1973. I was, uh, I was in high school. I was at a meeting for this uh, uh, thing called Young Life, and uh, young people from around the city of Houston had gathered uh, in, this, uh, in this big uh, convocation, and I saw a movie. And, you know, uh, sometimes movies don't hold up over time as well as, in other words, you might remember it having been particularly a masterpiece, and then Upon subsequent review a few years later, it's not quite as good as you remembered. I'm going to let you judge uh, how this movie has held up. So this is, this is the epic film. Uh, we're just going to catch a, just a taste uh, called Time for Living. You know it's a real movie because you have the countdown like this. <laughs> Okay, it starts a little slow. Here's an invitation to take some time and discover something different, to share in something real. It's a way of living with Young Life. Sing along if you know it. Drum roll's coming. Hey, come along. Oh, that's enough of that. All right. Pretty good, huh? It worked on me. Let me tell you, it absolutely worked on me. If, we, if we'd have just watched the next 19 minutes or so, uh, you would have seen some things. You would have heard some things. Uh, you got to take my word for it that the soundtrack stayed just that groovy the whole way through it. And the scenery was absolutely stunning. I mean, it truly was a beautiful geography. And the dialogue, there's dialogue in this film, and it was quite engaging uh, and compelling. And the sideburns and the blue jean cutoffs were fantastic. The climax of the movie, this Time for Living movie, uh, is that this uh, groovy guy and this groovy girl, they're on a precipice, I mean, right on a cliff. They're in Colorado. Uh, and you see them right on the edge there uh, with this panorama in front of them. And he takes off his watch because it's time for 
living. Let's talk about that. Uh, Time for Living. That movie actually worked on me in this way, uh, that when I was offered the opportunity to go to Colorado, to Young Life Silver Cliff Ranch, uh, for free, I said yes. That's how much the movie worked on me. Because without that movie, if they just said, you can go to Colorado for free with these groovy guys and girls, I would have thought, ah, I'm not sure. But once I saw the movie, <laughs> I was there. And, and honestly, uh, what they promised me was the greatest week of my life or my money back, which, of course, they sent me for free. <laughs> so that wasn't much of a promise. But it was the best week of my life. Uh, uh, up to that moment, it absolutely was. Because that week, uh, and I'm, I wasn't coming from any kind of church background. I wasn't coming from any kind of... Uh, people that prayed or talked about God. That just wasn't the way I was brought up. Uh, during that week, I began to grasp this, uh, this thing that Jesus said when he says, I come, I come that, that they may have life and have it to the full, John 10, 10. So I want to talk to you today about this idea of time for living. So to, to do that, I need to talk about, first I got to talk a little bit about time, then I got to talk a little about living. And uh, I won't talk that much about the preposition because uh, life's too short, right? So time. So time is an important uh, theme uh, in your Bible. I'm not sure if you have locked in on that. I've been highly focused on what the Bible has to say about time. I'm trying to finish this book, I'm writing about time. And In the Greek New Testament, there are two different words that are used for time. Uh, And this is not just New Testament. It goes all the way back through the history of the Greek uh, literature and all the great philosophers. They talk about two types of time. There's chronos. uh, And chronos is the word that that talks about chronological time. Okay? Time as we experience it and endure it as a relentless succession of seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and millennia. Uh, That's chronos, time that we waste and time that we kill and time that wastes and kills us. Chronos. And then there's this other word, kairos. It talks... It's the word that refers to the right time, the opportune time, uh, the momentous moment. Uh, uh, And so those those two words uh, uh, are used throughout the Greek New Testament in various interesting ways. Uh, uh, the, uh, The backstory for those two words is that when God made everything at the creation, when God created the space-time continuum, and he said, it's very good. Uh, time was, was a gift to human beings, a purposeful gift. Uh, and you, you get this in the poetic uh, refrain of, the, of Genesis 1, you know, there was evening, there was morning the first day. We were created to live in this rhythm of work uh, and rest, And time is a gift. 
But back uh, in the, at the beginning, uh, when everything was very good, when God's shalom was the order of the day, before shalom had been vandalized by our rebellion, there was no difference between chronos and kairos. Every moment was a momentous moment. Uh, there was no wasting and killing time because there was unbroken communion, unbroken uh, relationship of love, self-giving love between God and uh, human beings. So that was God's intention, not that there's uh, this chronos and this kairos, but chronos and kairos, we experience it all in the same way uh, because we're created for this relationship of love. And kairos is about when real love breaks into time. So when Jesus announced the, the, the kingdom of the God in his very first sermon in Mark 1.15, he says, you know, the, cro- the kairos is fulfilled. He's saying the kairos is breaking into the chronos. The kingdom of God is breaking in to this bogus and rebellious uh, world system. Uh, and that was the good news. Now let's talk about uh, living just a little bit. Uh, there's two words in the Greek New Testament for life. There's the word bios, uh, B-I-O-S, from which we get words like biology. How about that? Uh, and it refers to our, uh, our biological, uh, physical uh, existence. Okay? Uh, and there's this other word, zoe. Uh, and this is referring, this also means life, but it's referring uh, to a fuller, uh, uh, qualitatively uh, different order of existence, that which goes beyond merely biological persistence uh, or survival. Zoe is the life that God created us for. So when Jesus says, I come that they may have life, he say, come that they may have zoe. Not just be biological uh, entities functioning and surviving, but that they may have zoe to the full, which is actually, he's saying, I'm coming to bring them the reconvergence of the, of the kairos and the chronos, because in Jesus himself, he is the kairos and he is the zoe. That's the good news of the gospel. So Zoe refers to that life that is offered to us through our participation by faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in the Apostle John's writings, this new and different order of existence is called eternal life. A lot of people equate the phrase eternal life uh, <clears throat> with the afterlife, or with dying uh, in biological terms and going to heaven. That understanding of eternal life is not entirely false, but it misses a key point. According to the New Testament, eternal life starts here and now in communion with Jesus. And this is the testimony God has given, past tense, us eternal life. And this life is, present tense, in His Son. The person who has the Son has life, Zoe, present tense. 
That's 1 John 5.11. So we see, therefore, that the uh, present convergence of Jesus uh, in Jesus Christ of Bios and Zoe corresponds to the convergence of Kronos and Kairos, and we are called by grace to eternal communion with Jesus, who himself is the incarnation of the Kairos and the Zoe, and our life-giving communion with Jesus should mark and define our present existence together as God's people. This is not a pie-in-the-sky uh, thing that we're talking about. This is to be the lived experience of God's people together um, in his love. So our goal each day, God's goal for us, is to live a truly happy life. How about that? Amen. Now, <clears throat> that's a relatively new development in my understanding. Uh, for years, I believed and taught uh, that happiness was, uh, you know, something that comes and goes depending upon one's circumstances. And that our focus should not be on our happiness, which is contingent upon circumstances, because this life is filled with beauty and adversity, and we will be correspondingly happy or sad uh, in connection with each. And I would be a fool to say that this life is not going to deal you the kind of cards that steal your happiness on occasion. I'm not going to be the kind of preacher that tries to sell you on that particular lie. So this is a rough and tumble world, and happiness is elusive, and it's not really what we should aspire to as Christians. That's what I actually taught and believed. And I taught that we should focus, instead of focusing on this so-called pursuit of happiness, we should focus on joy, which is that uh, uh, a gift, that fruit that God gives us that transcends uh, uh, our circumstances and that allows us to experience uh, 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 His beauty and His love no matter how adverse uh, our particular present moment challenges may be. And I wasn't entirely wrong about that, was I? But I wasn't right either. Because I was operating with the biblically defective definition of happiness. My definition of happiness was, you know, uh, informed more by Stoic philosophy or pop culture uh, than it was by uh, the great uh, wisdom within Scripture and the great teaching of the wisest people in the history of the church. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm happy uh, to report that there is nothing superficial about true happiness. Uh, in recent years, since I've happily reconsidered the meaning of happiness, I am now 100% in favor of happiness. I'm coming out today in this Baptist church as a strong advocate for human happiness. So let's, let's get the record straight, okay? And, and I've been helped in this. So there's a, there's a philosopher and theologian named Robert Spitzer. Uh, and uh, he synthesized and distilled uh, various sources of ancient wisdom on the topic of human happiness. And I want to share a little bit with, with what Professor Spitzer uh, has talked about. He talks about four levels of human happiness. And each level 
is good as far as it goes, but only one level hits God's target for human flourishing. Deep and enduring happiness is only found at the fourth level. So let me walk you through the levels. First level of happiness uh, focuses on the immediate gratification that results from pleasure and possession. Anybody familiar with this? Don't lie to me. I know you're I know you're conservative Baptist, but you're familiar with this first level of happiness, I hope. Uh, I experience this level of happiness when I eat uh, Texas barbecue, wash it down with a Mexican Coca-Cola, and finish that highly satisfying Epicurean experience with some Bluebell ice cream, preferably homemade vanilla. And there is nothing wrong with any of that. This happiness, of course, is very temporary, and soon I will be restless for another pleasurable and savory sensory experience. I may even get bored with barbecue if I eat it more than four or five times a week. I'm testing that theory. This first level of happiness, which is based on the common sense human strategy of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, is not bad. It is, it is not to be frowned upon. Uh, uh, it is, it is part, of, part of what God has created us for us to experience his first level of happiness. And we should thank God for it. But it's not enough. We all know there must be more to life. So let's talk about the second level of happiness. The second level of happiness focuses on personal achievement is measured by comparative advantage. Striving for excellence and achievement is good, but self-focused striving can only produce short-term happiness. We experience this level of happiness whenever we win, when we gain some comparative advantage over others in any form of competition. Anybody familiar with this? All right. I must admit that I personally have a very strong preference for winning. I was raised to be very competitive. My father always told me, show me a good loser and I will show you a loser. Predictably, I have at times been a very sore loser. I love my hyper-competitive occupation as a trial lawyer. I thoroughly enjoy the competition, particularly when I win. And one problem with the second level of happiness is that it places the human ego at the center which has deleterious consequences for human relationships. Moreover, if my sense of self-worth is tied to and derived from my comparative success, my continued happiness is contingent on my ability to continually improve upon my level of success. This is the essence of what we used to call the rat race. Happiness based on personal achievement 
can be good to the extent that we push ourselves to develop and use our talents and skills to accomplish great things. But second level happiness is not sustainable. So let's talk about the third level of happiness. The third level of happiness takes us outside of ourselves. Uh, there's this uh, great uh, Greek word, ekstasis, to stand outside of oneself, from which we get the English word ecstasy, which unfortunately has been co-opted by, you know, uh, various purveyors of uh, immorality. But it's still a good idea. Ecstasy is God's, it's part of God's gift to us, the gift of being ecstatic. Uh, I remember uh, the first time I saw with my own eyes the Grand Canyon. Anybody seen that thing? Whew. I was a, I was a husky uh, 12-year-old knucklehead, uh, completely self-absorbed, uh, like a lot of 12-year-olds and probably a lot of 22-year-olds and maybe some 62-year-olds. Uh, I mean, I just, I just was. And here we are at the Grand Canyon. And uh, you, know, you know that experience of seeing the Grand Canyon the first time? You, you drive up, you park, and then you kind of you uh, walk over there, and then, wow, good gravy. The this expanse, the size, right? And then you start to notice the colors uh, and the shapes and the shadows. And... With any, any moment, the most self-absorbed 12-year-old husky knucklehead is ecstatic. I'm outside of myself and I'm wondering about where such beauty could possibly come from. How could you explain something this awesome? See, an experience of beauty like that, just, I mean, a good grief, a good South Texas sky on a cold winter night and you just look up and then you're outside yourself and you're, you're wondering at this, this huge, beautiful thing that's filling up your senses. Well, that's a pointer to this third level of happiness which finds its real fruition in love. By looking for the good in another person and by building relationships in which it's just as easy, if not easier, to do good for others as it is for yourself. And God gives us taste of this type of love, even in this broken and rebellious world, right? Like he gives us glimpses of real beauty. He gives us a taste of this love. Uh, <clears throat> Now, you probably, uh, those of you who've been blessed enough to, you know, have a kid or two, uh, if you're a mom or a dad, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to catch, catch my breath here. Do you remember... 
meeting that baby. Well, look, that's pretty good. <clears throat> that's the third level of happiness. And it corresponds to the deepest longing in the human heart. But what do we know? We know that the best human relationships, they all end in different ways, but ultimately with the painful separation of death. So that third level really whets our appetite for that beauty and that love that doesn't end that persists that endures that transcends That's called reality with a capital R. The human heart, you know, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, you know, <laughs> he has a lot of strange and wonderful things to say. But he's, and he's ta- in this chapter where he writes about uh, a time for everything and a season and on the transient nature of life and the, the brutal facticity of death, he says this, plants this one phrase that eternity has been planted in our hearts, a longing for the kairos, a longing for the love, a longing for the beauty that transcends this world. And so that's reality. So the third level of happiness, and I hope you know it, because it's good. It's really just a taste. So the fourth level of happiness starts with our initial and continuing recognition of our need for God. He is truth. He is love. He is justice, and he is peace. And he created us for and calls us to eternal communion. Zoe, starting now. Augustine's famous prayer is a good starting point. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. God created everything including all four levels of happiness. When we find this fourth level, we can properly be grateful to God for barbecue and bluebell and for our achievements and success 
and for the people we love. But we know that ultimate meaning and fulfillment are found in communion with God. He is the essence of real life. He is the reality that our hearts cry for. So I just want to give you a couple of quick biblical points on this, just in case. I know this is a Baptist church, and at some point you expect the preacher to open his Bible, which, which I think is a reasonable expectation. So I'll be quick about this uh, passage uh, I know you have heard about and thought about. I know Macaulay's preached on it. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 is the uh, temptation of Jesus uh, in the wilderness. We're just going to focus on one, uh, one moment uh, in that uh, incredibly uh, compelling narrative. You recall that Jesus was propelled out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit after he was baptized. Uh, and there the expectation was that he would be personally uh, engaged in a spiritual battle uh, with the tempter. And Jesus has not uh, had any food for 40 days and nights. And the tempter uh, comes to him and says to him, If you are the Son of God, Speak in order that these stones may become bread. Now, that's a pretty crafty uh, challenge, right? Notice it's a conditional statement. Uh, Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. Uh, any doubt about that was resolved at the baptism when the voice said, you are my son, this is my son. In you, in him I am well pleased. Uh, and so uh, the devil says, yeah, I, that's the rumor I heard you're the son of God. Obviously the son of God doesn't have to be hungry in the wilderness. The son of God uh, would have the authority over creation, and that authority would include uh, the capacity, the power, the ability to transform these desert stones into, uh, uh, into delicious bread, the best bread ever made, no doubt. And bread is good, right? Right? I mean, I know, look, I mean, I know a lot of movie stars are telling you, and Tom Brady says they don't eat bread. For, don't listen to those people. <laughs> bread is good. Bread is good. If your doctor tells you to not eat bread, get another doctor. <laughs> so the problem here isn't that bread is bad and that being hungry is good. The temptation was simply, you know, do what's reasonable. Do what you can do. 
But how does Jesus uh, answer that? Jesus uh, answers and says, it stands written. A person shall not live. Zoe. By bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the temptation by the tempter was for the Son of God, uh, in dereliction of his duty to the Father, to uh, create his own second-level happiness. And there's probably some third-level happiness in there, because if you can turn stones into bread, you're definitely the winner over the next guy in the desert who's hungry and seems to lack that particular supernatural ability. Here's the whole point. This is why this temptation, and every, every one of the temptations, and everything Jesus said and did ultimately throughout the Gospels, points to this key coaching point for the fourth level of happiness. What Jesus demonstrated in his biological life was that he found the deeper and fuller meaning of life, the zoe, based on his willingness to absolutely trust the Father. And that would mean uh, uh, he knew that he was in the wilderness to fast. And that he knew the Father had him well in hand. And the devil presented him with the opportunity to step outside of trusting the Father and to take his own initiative to demonstrate and use his own power uh, to achieve his own desirable uh, impact or effect. And that one deviation from trusting completely in the Father would have derailed the entire mission of the Son of God. And in this respect, Jesus is absolutely our role model. We can make choices every day uh, to exercise our will and our power uh, to achieve some measure of first-level happiness. Especially you live in an age of relative, really unprecedented abundance in the history of you know, hum humanity. Don't take that for granted. It's all very fragile. Uh, but right now, if you want the most delicious food uh, in the world and the, and the, and the, and the best tasting uh, drink or whatever uh, uh, pleasurable experience you want to seek, you arguably have the opportunity and resources just to go get it. You can do that. You don't need God for that on one level. 
And in the same way, you can exercise your will and your volition and your power uh, and make choices to accentuate your comparative happiness against the next guy. And you can even, you can even, because this is, every human being is capable of this because we're made in God's image. You can enter into and experience the deepest type of interpersonal human love with a, with a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a close friend. We're capable of that. People who don't know God are capable of that. But for the fourth level of happiness, it's there that our real limitations are exposed. Because the only way I can experience the fourth level of happiness is to know that I can't manufacture that. I can't do anything except say yes to God's gift. Say yes to his grace. To uh, say no to my own selfish uh, preoccupations. To say no to my delusions that I can manufacture and create anything of meaning and value and happiness that lasts. To get the fourth level of happiness, I have to understand the absolute futility of my own efforts to be truly and transcendently happy. And that's where God meets us. When we let go of those delusions and know that our only hope, our only hope for real happiness, for the real life that God's created us for, is by just saying yes to his grace and trusting completely in what he's done and what he does. So the Apostle Paul put it this way, uh, very stark language, but it's very true. It says Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. For the Apostle Paul, he realized that not only did Jesus die for him, but that by grace through faith, he effectively participated in that death to his old way of life. I've been crucified with Christ. All of my delusions that I can manufacture and create my own happiness apart from God have been crucified with Christ. All of my uh, self-preoccupation and self-importance has been crucified with Christ. Uh, uh, Everything that I thought gave me the competitive advantage over the next guy has been crucified with Christ. And Paul writes, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Zoe. And the life I now live, Zoe, I live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who was crucified uh, for me, who died and gave himself for me. So there you go. Why would we settle for anything less? Why set our sights so low? So there's good news. 
You want to be happy? Really happy? Do you want that Zoe that God created you to experience? Now is the time for living. Say yes to God's grace with gratitude today. Amen. All right, let's stand up together this morning and let's sing together.